Coming from just outside LARB HQ here in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today we're sitting outside. It's a, it's a nice day after all. Uh, with David Shook, poet, translator, filmmaker. He's got two books recently out, one of which is a book of his own, a poetry collection. I'm holding now, Our Obsidian Tongues. The other one is his translation of a book by Mexican author Mario Beatin, Shiki Nagaoka, A Nose for Fiction. I have always thought there's there's much to be explored where Japan and Mexico overlap. Do you think that's true? I, I'm I'm sure there there is. There are a lot of really bad sushi restaurants in Mexico. Why are they so bad? I've wondered about that. And you grew up in Mexico City, if I'm not mistaken. So can you shed light on this? I mean, the Chinese food is a whole lower circle of hell, but this, the sushi. Yeah, yeah, I can't really speak to that. I, I haven't done quite enough research. But but it is surprising considering the quality of Mexican seafood. Yes, I mean, the mariscos are always delicious. Mexican sushi, I don't know. But sushi's not a part of, of this novel. This is this is a book I looked forward to reading. I mean, I read Spanish very, very slowly, so I've enjoyed Mario Beatin's books. And I've, I've, read, I've read so few because it takes so long, even though they're so short. Where does Shiki Nagoka fit into his body of work? Yeah, Shiki Nagaoka, I guess, is one of his... I mean, he'd done a lot of novellas before this. I don't know the precise ordering. I don't even know if Mario does. You know, you ask him how many books he's published, and he has no idea. You know, right. well, he, Why is his body of work so big? Um, I think it, part of it has to do with his, his relentless curiosity and, and his playfulness, I think. And, and that's where this book fits in. I think I'd place it... At this point in his life, about two-thirds into his, his, you know, the sort of personal canon of Bellatine. But it it plays, a lot of his books play with, with Japanese themes. Even one of his two most recent books, um, La Clase Muerta, is all about um, Mishima and the workshop. It's, it's kind of a, I think it... It's one of his funniest books, that one. It's about Mishima and the creative writing workshop he facilitated for 20 years after being decapitated. Ah, oh, yes. It's uh, an interesting commentary on on our MFA-fueled system here in the States, mm-hmm. although I, I don't know that Mario wrote it with that intention. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, Mario's interest in, in Japanese literature is is part of what makes him such an incredible world writer. I think he's he's definitely though he's writing from Mexico and as a Mexican writer he's writing world literature and he's reading far beyond the confines of the Spanish language. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that also helps contextualize this book among his work. You know, it's it's part of an ongoing exploration of eastern literature. Mm-hmm and its relationship to contemporary Mexican literature. How did his work first come to your attention? Um, yeah, I think, I think I sort of got on the Mario train a little, a little late, you know. I, I'd read Beauty Salon and really enjoyed it, but I think the, you know, it was really this book that, that first attracted me to his work to the degree that I wanted to translate it myself. Mm-hmm. I think his his formal play, his his linguistic... I, I mean, it's a very stylized book, which made it incredibly difficult to translate because it's so Latinate and so... 
in some sense pedantic in Spanish that in translation, you know, if you achieve those same effects, you wind up looking like a terrible translator sometimes, which is frustrating. Right. But um, the language is purposely deadening in his Spanish. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that attracted me to his work, but also his his relentless rebellion, I guess, against literary authority, against the literary establishment, and against, I guess, to a, a greater degree, narrative authority in general, and and the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of the world. This book is a very short biography, shall we say, of this character, Shiki Nagaoka, a Japanese writer who never strayed far from his place of birth, uh, writing in the early 20th century. Uh, the character lives until about 1970. My, my mind first goes to a poet I'm not that familiar with, with the na- by the name of Shiki Masaoka, something like that, a real guy. And then I, reading the book, I see references to other Japanese creators. There's, a, uh, there's the noted filmmaker uh, Ozu Kenzo, which I'm thinking, well, I know Ozu uh, Yasujiro pretty well. Mm-hmm. Who's this Kenzo? How much... How much, rela- how much of a relationship does this book have to real Japanese people? You know, it's it's hard to say exactly, mm-hmm. and and I think that's that's part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's it it's very difficult to distinguish where where the truth begins and where it ends, mm-hmm. and how much how much of this is is real. You know, there's also a lot of references to to Latin American writers like Juan Rulfo and Jose Maria Arguedas and even um, Pablo Soler Frost, the contemporary Mexican writer who in the book is is said to have written a, a monograph about Shiki Nagaoka. So, so yeah, I think there's everything in the book comes from Mario's extensive research and he knows, he knows more about Japanese literature than anyone I know. And and it's funny, you know, recently we've been at a couple universities together and, and I've seen Japanese literature specialists asking him about some of these these characters in his book, you know, and, and even they, what was the inspiration for these characters or are these it, guys real? Yeah, that, you know, most I think most often most people take and and you know, anything that's published in book form to be true. You know, mm-hmm. they they accept its veracity and and so that's what's been interesting hearing you know chairs of literature departments asking mario so what does this untranslatable book look like you know it must be very beautiful yes, the, the the final book by shiki nagaoka only referenced by a symbol heavily studied but not in a known language correct exactly it has been proved untranslatable so far <laughs> the the nose for fiction is a literal nose. It's a grotesquely huge nose. This character, Shiki Nagaoka, is supposed to have had that turned his life inevitably toward the course that it took. Does, does that still... Is that an expression in, in Spanish as well, uh, no, having a nose for something? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's calc from English. I, I suspect it might be. But yeah, it is. It is a, an expression. And I, I changed in the... Um, in the translation of of the subtitle, a nose for fiction, uh, it appears exactly the same in Spanish. Una nariz de ficción, so of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I changed it to for fiction here um, because I think it it allows a little more play mm-hmm. 
with with the language. But I think that's there in the Spanish too. Mm. Now, what about this book? You mentioned it was what got you on the Mario train. What about it drew you in in a way? What was he doing differently from other Mexican writers? Let's say. Well, I mean, for one thing, I I'm extremely attracted to the novella. As a as a translator, but also as a reader, I there seem to be more in the Spanish language. If for my what reading I can do, there seem to be more novellas. Is that correct? I don't know if there are more or if it's that the genre is is somewhat more acceptable and considered a a serious and worthwhile literary endeavor. You know, not just by Bellatine, but by you know Cesar Ira. But there's a lot of a lot of novellaists who. Who almost exclusively write novellas in mm. Spanish, um, which is great, I think. So, so part of it had to do with the length. I think I was sort of the formal construct of the book, and and the idea of false biography, something that's always interested me. You know, not not just false biography, but but artifice, I guess. You know,、mm. like Jack Spicer's After Lorca, or、mm. you know, and there's there's a great tradition of doing this in. In Latin American literature too, you know, writers like the the Uruguayan Humberto Meguet and the Nicaraguan Joaquin Pasos publishing work under pseudonyms、um, simultaneously, you know, often in the same magazines where they have work under their own name. I I think that sort of experimentation with literary identity is something that that's really interesting to me, and and that's kind of what sold me on on Shiki.、Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which it goes even beyond the nose. He's overtly comic here to the point of goofiness, yet pulls it off somehow. Yeah, and I think that's that's the sort of knowing wink I I think of Mario's work is that it's so. I mean, to to anyone who looks at it rationally, it's obviously it's it's farcical. You know, a, a writer whose nose is so large, he has to have it held up by a, a wooden device so that he can write, or you know, he he has a young boy hold it up so he can eat his soup. <laughs> I mean, it's it's absurd, but. But the absurdity, the real absurdity, is is how many people accept that as fact, or how believable it becomes just because it's it's printed on the page. Right, right.、It's, I will. I'll, I'll posit this. It might seem a little convoluted, but I was watching recently a film that played here in Los Angeles called Vampire by Shunji Ueda, a well-known Japanese horror, J horror director. He shot this movie though in Canada. All the All but one of the actors are are white Canadians, and、uh, I was watching this movie and I thought this is like any other Japanese horror movie I would watch. But the fact that it's in Canada with non-Japanese people, I'd accept everything in this movie if it was Japanese people saying it and doing it. But it seems so off kilter, so askew, so unbelievable when it's people who look like me.、Uh, <laughs> the foreign element that he's writing about Japan and an older Japan does that. Make things more believable to readers. Does that question make sense? First of all, no, I think it does make sense, and and yeah, I think it does make things more believable. I think Mario is very intentional in also incorporating Latin American references, and in some of the film work that we've done around Shiki Nagoka, he's extended those those references further in ways that he hasn't in the book. Sort of building up a, a corpus of of Shiki. Knowledge outside of of the text itself. Why why has there been so little translation of Mario's books into English thus far? 
I mean, I think it's it's part of the broader question of why there's not more translation of books into English. Mm. It's, it's just in line with with we we lack many Mexican writers, not just specifically him. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I I certainly am am a champion of of Mario's literature and believe it mm. it deserves to be translated into English and and more and more of it is. We're my my nonprofit publisher of world literature and translation is doing his book Jacob the Mutant early next year in a translation by Jacob Steinberg a young New York translator and I, yeah I, I really just think that speaks to the the dearth of of quality literary translation being published today mm-hmm. now why translate Shiki other than that it was the book that got you on Mario train as we've established yeah I mean I think that's that's the biggest thing. I, I'm not, I'm not an enthusiastic translator of prose, mm-hmm. and this is the first, I guess the first, I, I say longer work of prose I've translated, and you know it's it's pretty short, <laughs> half photographs. Yeah, exactly, which which were very difficult to translate. <laughs> I I'm a thousand work- words each. Yeah, I'm I'm <laughs> at least, I'm working on on a new translation. I'm I'm. I've agreed to do one more of Mario's novellas and then a a further novella from the future Spanish, one that he hasn't written yes. yet. And and that's the one I'm working on now. I've I've found that sort of prophetic translation much much more exciting than than, you know, regular old translation. And translating from the future Spanish certainly adds a dimension of difficulty that wouldn't be there otherwise when there's when it's existing, when it's extant Spanish. You know exactly. It's 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 a minefield for the literary <laughs> translator, but but I think that's what what makes it so exciting. Now the character of Shiki Nagaoka is also a photographer, in addition to being a writer and a developer of, of photographs. Works in a photo kiosk at the end of his life, and uh, as we've mentioned, the book is also half photographs. What uh, what do you think? What do you think works well about the use of Visual as well as visuals as well as text in Shiki. Well, I think the the photographs do a lot to affirm the veracity of his existence. You know, I don't I look think, too hard at them, but yeah, no, exactly. But but just the you know, I think we we so often tend to to confirm the existence of things with with material proof. And, and these photos, you know, kind of like the text, while never directly affirming the material existence of Shiki, do a pretty good job of, of suggesting it. You know, it's, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, artful, artful pornography or something. It, <laughs> it, it suggests sensuality without showing anything explicit. You know, the, the photographs are very evocative. If you want to believe in Shiki Nagaoka, then Mario does give you every chance to do it, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I believe in him. <laughs> Tell me about this the language in the book. You've mentioned a bit earlier. It's purposely deadening. But in Spanish, I mean, there's, there's many qualities that make it hard for me to read Spanish uh, other than my limited vocabulary. Sentences go on a long time. and uh, Tell me about the way this book is written. There's an extra layer where... Uh, Sentences often don't have subjects and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the the thing that's that's trickiest is just the deliberate passivity. And you have these sentences 
that ramble on and on, but without any clear, any clear direction or any, you know, just narrative on that level, you know, <laughs> just commas and commas and commas and a positives galore. Right. And, you know, you've got a, a 200 word sentence with a, a being verb, you know, right, like yeah. it's, it's absurd stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's very, I, I think of, I think it's very pedantic. I think that's, that's the best way to describe the, the style of Shiki Nagoka. It's, <laughs> it's intentionally or deliberately pedantic. Was it a goal of yours to keep sentences intact where possible? It was in in the the current edition. There's a couple sentences I I'm not entirely happy with. There were some I had to break up, and others that, in retrospect, I I think I should have broken up. But but for the most part, yeah, it was my goal. And in, and in some ways, that's that's what I find so difficult about translating fiction. I actually feel a much greater urge to remain literal in my translations than I do when translating poetry. In your own literary history, did, did translation come first as an interest, or languages, or poetry, or what was, what was the order of things for you? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I, I started writing poetry first, but translation was always there. It, it wasn't something I, I came upon you know during my literary studies or anything it was just a part of a part of life you know uh, translating for myself as a kid but also translating for you know for all sorts of people for my parents for friends for um you know the we should get into your biography why the need for some why the so many chances to translate yeah well i i grew up the the son of missionaries in mexico city and was was constantly translating not just language but cultural values and ideas you know and and i think a lot of my my earliest influences were spanish language poets mm. that i that i would read and i i wasn't actively translating them into english i was just reading them in spanish and and that i was reading them in spanish but writing mostly in english mm. And so, yeah, I, I began seriously translating in college uh, when I worked at, at World Literature Today, the magazine of international literature. And basically, it, it kept going from there. At that time, I was, I was studying linguistics, generative linguistics, and working a lot with endangered languages in Oklahoma. And later spent some time living in indigenous villages in central Mexico studying Nahuatl, contemporary Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, which still has about 1.5 million speakers. Does that count as endangered or not? Well, languages are always only one generation away from extinction. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it depends. There's a lot of, of variant dialects of Nahuatl. I, I would consider it endangered, but not as endangered as, as most of the languages of North America, where our, our largest indigenous language is Cherokee with 6,000 speakers. Mm. And most Native American languages today have less than 10, 15 speakers. What brought your attention to, to endangered languages as an interest? I think part of it was was location. 
was was where I was at the time. I'd, I'd been interested in indigenous Mexican languages as a child. I think just from from exposure, you know, seeing seeing indigenous women at the tianguis whose language I couldn't understand, you know, and and just being interested in in language and and the idea that language is is something precious to to have or to keep. So so part of it was location, being in Oklahoma for a while, sort of where there are 35 living Native American languages, mm-hmm. most of them almost gone, um, did a lot. But I, I think what's what really sort of tipped the scales in that direction is, is the indigenous literatures I began to encounter and the idea that these languages we're losing aren't aren't just languages and aren't just depositories of possible scientific knowledge but but that each one has its own unique literature whether or not it's as we conceive of literature in the English language or not mm-hmm. and that by losing those languages we're in most cases losing entire literatures in in their entirety what sort of pieces of indigenous literature did capture your imagination so much yeah, I think a big a big part of of my early interest were the classical Nahuatl poets mm-hmm. that have been translated by Miguel Leon Portilla and um Gary Bay and also, you know, Peter Everwine, the American poet's incredible versions and Michael Schmidt, mm-hmm. the British poet who who grew up in Mexico City and uh, actually went to the same school as me and studied mm-hmm. with Gary Bay while he was still alive. I I think there their translations did a lot for me. Later, some some of the oral traditions of of East and West Africa um, really inspired me. And then the the literature of the Isthmus Zapotec, the the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in mm-hmm. southern Oaxaca, which has an incredible written literature that goes back just over two hundred years. Those poets who I guess sort of paved the way for my entrance into literary translation, especially Victor Tehran. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys just really sealed the deal, I guess. <laughs> Given that, what uh, I want to hear more about what would interest you about Shiki Nagaoka's final book in an untranslatable language. What Does untranslatability as a concept interest you? I mean, untranslatability is all we have, I think. You know, the the impossibility of translation is what makes it so exciting to me. I think... In all cases, even when we know the languages. In, in all cases, yeah. I think the, in addition to his photography, one of the things that's very important to Shiki's own writing is the act of translation. As a young man, he, he excelled in studying English, German, French... And for a long time, he wouldn't publish anything that hadn't been translated into and back out of several languages, almost using the act of translation as a filter mm-hmm. and, and using language itself as a filter. So, of course, all of that and, – and in some way, I, I think his use of photography is a similar – impulse you know as a, a narrative framework for for his own writing um, so that that interested me of course but but the idea of the untranslatable book is is pretty compelling I mean it's it's 
an explicit example of every book in translation. <laughs> you know, I, I think like it's it it stands in for for any book. Mm. It makes me think of a couple things related to the very popular Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. Number one, that he wrote his early books by writing in English, translating that English that was the second language into Japanese, and then getting criticized literarily for his, his writing sounding too English-like. But with his newer books, uh, one of his translators, I think it was Jay Rubin, was saying, he just came out and said, you're really reading me when you're reading Murakami. It might not have been him. I think it was him. But one of his translators said that. Is that a sentiment you agree with? You're really reading the translator. Oh, yeah, 100%. Hmm. And, and that's why why translators are so important. You know, that's why I'm able to translate Mario's uh, novel, Writing Lessons for the Deaf and Blind, from the future Spanish. Yes. You might as, it might as well translate from the future Spanish as the yeah. current Spanish. Why, why not, you know? Right. I, I'm saving myself a step. <laughs> you handed me, before we started, a copy of the Spanish original of Shiki Nagaoka, Una Nariz de Ficción. And what am I going to find when I read this? Because I've already read your translation. The original will come second for me. So what do you, what do you think I will discover? What might, kind of things might I discover when I read this original? Well, I, I hope you'll discover that, that I'm not as bad a translator as you might have suspected <laughs> from the extreme passivity and, and pedanticism of the English language translation. Did you two have conversations about this extreme pedantism of the, of the original language? Like, uh, did you really have to make it this passive? Oh, yeah. For we, I mean, Mario and I correspond a lot, you know, like almost every day, mm. uh, mostly through WhatsApp on our iPhones. Mario is an avid iPhone user. Ah. Uh, it's it's made things a lot easier because of his one arm. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, I'm always asking him questions, you know, about why he does stuff, and mm. we have a very lively, fun correspondence. I think in in reading the Spanish, I'll, I. Honestly, I'd be very interested to to see what you think. I I've had a few people who've read both um, talk to me about their impressions. I think it's like I said, you know. I think this is a very faithful translation, in as much as I believe there can be a faithful translation. Mm. I, I'd be interested, though, to to hear your thoughts. I, I'm not sure what you'll encounter in the Spanish. It, it only now occurs to me, I mean, Shiki Nagaoka is a book about a character with, uh, a writer with a physical difference that attracts t attention to him and that sets the course of his life. And uh, Mario has a hook for a hand. I mean, is there any correspondence between the nose and the hook? Oh, yeah, I think entirely. The, um, and, and most of Mario's books have to do with some physical deformity or physical transformation. Um... So yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely a relationship. I think that's something that that Mario himself would hesitate to affirm. Uh, I probably wouldn't ask him that if he were here. So that's why I'm putting it to you. No, I mean I would ask him though. Oh, I think I it's I think that's hilarious. But um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I think there's. There's something suggested there, but perhaps not intentionally not made explicit, you know, and I, I think that's how Mario would have it. 
Which of his many hooks did he wear when you did your reading at uh, Skylight here in Los Angeles? Well, actually, you know, I've, I was trying to convince him to wear one. He told me when he wore his dildo hook to oh. Brazil that the, um, the customs officials um, stopped him and hassled him for a while. So of all he, countries. I know, right? You'd think. You'd think it'd be fine. <laughs> but um, he's actually told me two things. One, that uh, hooks are very out of style now. You oh, know, really? he, he wouldn't be caught dead with a hook. You know, it'd be embarrassing, like wearing, I don't know, uh, plaid shorts or something. In the one-armed community, hooks are not the done thing anymore. Well, I think just, just in, in the world at large. Mm-hmm. The second thing is he, um, he was born without an arm. And, and now the, the leading research apparently says if you, you know, prosthetic arms are mostly for people who have lost the function of an arm ah. or loss of them and and if you're he <laughs> i don't know this is this is from mario's mouth through my my translation sure indeed. <laughs> uh, which as, as faithful as it can get exactly you know most of the time <laughs> and um psychologically they say if if you're born without without a limb you shouldn't replace it because um you know as mario frequently contests he he was born this way. He's not missing anything. He never had had it to begin with. Right, right, right. You, you don't feel a lack of what wasn't there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Mm. In your collection, in your poetry collection, our Obsidian Tongues, there are poems to do with Mexico City. There's one to do with Los Angeles, uh, overtly from what I can tell. And you know, how much, how much is this a collection of poetry of place? I, that's an interesting question. I guess I, I somewhat question the idea of, of poetry of place. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps for me, because po- my poetry, I feel like, is always very grounded in, in place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's no other way. Yeah, at least in, in my own experience thus right. far. I think this book I very much consider a, a book about Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And... And a book sort of of the, in some sense, the psychogeography of adolescence. I hate to say that, um, but it's true. You know, it's kind of like the book I had to push out to get to other stuff. (laughs) I only came to know Mexico City as an adult visiting there. But what was it like to come to know Mexico City as an adolescent, as somebody in the process of growing up and growing up in a place that, I don't know, did did it seem like a foreign place to you? Or did you spend enough time there that it did not seem like one? No, it didn't seem like a foreign place. Well, well, I guess that's sort of the the duality that I think I in that I explore a lot of my poems is that it it didn't. It seems and still does seem utterly homey. You know, it it seems like my home, and and it's a very inspiring home. You know, it's a an infinite city. You know, both in size but also in possibility and. And in the sort of strange little worlds you encounter, which is, you know, what a lot of Mario's books deal with. But it's at the same time, I think it's it's a very foreign place. And especially having lived there as a child, but not as an adult, you know, my my world there, you know, when I go back, it's it's funny. I feel very much at home, but I don't I don't know the city as an adult would. You know, I, I don't. 
You don't know grown-up places as yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing. Um, you know, I can get around fine. I, you know, I rode the bus a ton as a kid and teenager all over the city. But, but you know, I asked me for a bar recommendation, and I, I'm not going to have a good one, you know. Right, right, right. Or, or I will, but it it will be something I've recently, you know, come upon. Yeah, it won't go back. You yeah. won't go way back with it. Yeah, so, so I guess the city did did and and still does feel like a home in as much as as any place does mm-hmm. but i i think kind of kind of like los angeles that's what what mexico city shares with los angeles and i think the reason they're they're sister cities you know mexico city i remember in the 90s they said it had 20,000 neighborhoods 20,000 neighborhoods i mean i guess i can't argue against that yeah i mean i i'm you know I certainly didn't count them myself. Right. This is, you know, what sort of like popular lore, but that's <laughs> that's insane, you know, like that's that's wild, you know, in LA, you know, is also a city of neighborhoods, you know, and and even sub neighborhoods. We've got kooky stuff like, mm-hmm. you know, Virgil Village and yes, Hellmel yes, yes. and these these communities that are sort of claimed by the people that inhabit them, mm-hmm. you know. I think that that sort of the the infinite sprawl of both cities is is very similar too. In one of the poems in Our City and Tongues, you you mentioned that you know in being in Echo Park, you can feel like you're back in Mexico, in some sense, and that's one of the reasons I came to Los Angeles is because parts its parts all feel like other places. If that makes sense, it's there's a, a banner in at LAX. I guess they'll be taking it down soon because it's uh, Villaraigosa's face and he's out of office. But uh, welcome to Los Angeles, the city that's a world in itself, something like that. Is that the impression you get as well? World in microcosm of Los Angeles. Yeah, definitely, and of Mexico City too. I mean, I think that's that's the thing. You can be at like at the mall in Santa Fe and think that you're in the valley basically right. you know or in like some posh part of the valley or you can you know you can be in in a a slum tenement uh, of indigenous migrants that speak 30 plus languages and can't understand each other you know like it's 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 a macrocosm of microcosms just like LA some people some critics of Los Angeles will go with the horizontal babel thing they'll say oh look nobody can understand each other here nobody assimilates no there's no integration uh we don't we don't even have an official language here that's what i that's what i like about los angeles and that's that debate is very hard to resolve is it i mean you're never going to really bring anybody over to that side are you where it's like no no that's good uh it's it's an unbridgeable divide yeah i i think that's i don't to me it's also an undesirable divide i guess i kind of like you i don't see that's not interesting to me i think what's what's exciting is considering is it bad isn't interesting yeah yeah right. exactly mm-hmm. it's i suppose reflective of a larger debate in the states uh about whether or not the pot still melts and i mean that's i take it you consider that to be as uninteresting a question as i do yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like to eat porridge, you know. <laughs> I, I want, you know, I, yeah, I just think that's utterly uninteresting. And in, in some way, I think that narrative is, is very superficial and very outdated. You know, it's, it's an idea of the American dream that's not, 
realistic and and at least to me not not desirable any longer. Right. Yes. It's, you sort of don't want it in the first place. We've mentioned your film projects as well very briefly. In most of your biographies available, it mentions that you've uh, covertly shot films. You've shot films in secret. What does that mean to do that? Um, well, typically that means, in my case, that I, I've made films in countries where it's illegal to film or take photographs. At all? Whatsoever. Um, where and why is that, is that illegal? Yeah, well, the, the main example is in Equatorial Guinea in West Africa, which is... Um, by GDP, the richest state in Africa, but you know over ninety percent of its population lives in in poverty on less than I think over sixty percent on less than a dollar a day. Is that ten percent uh, the state or? It's pretty much the the dictator, um, President Obiang, who overthrew his uncle Macias in 1979, and has been president ever since. He's now the longest serving head of state in Africa since um, the Arab Spring. And because of their vast oil and natural gas reserves, maintains excellent relations with the United States, with most of the West, despite their appalling human rights record, which is why photography is illegal. You have to have police – technically, you have to have police permission to take a photo of your family on the beach. You know, in in practice, it's – it's not that strict. Mm. Um, Did you have to do anything to get around it, or was it just, I'm going to shoot this, and if anybody stops me, I'll stop? Well, yeah, upon, upon arrival, we were detained by the police commissioner and, and interrogated, um, split up. I was split up from my wife and my, um, my cameraman on the project. And um, actually, it's a, it's a funny story. Only because we were detained and interrogated were we able to sneak our film equipment into the country. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, we, we never went through customs because mm-hmm. we, there's no tourism in Equatorial Guinea. You get off the, the plane, beautiful airport, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you see on the other side of, of immigration all the, the chauffeurs holding up the oil signs, you oh, know, Exxon and um, Amarita Hess and all these different oil company signs, you know, that you recognize. But there's no no tourism whatsoever. Mm. And and so, you know, we were pretty immediately recognized as being too young and poorly dressed to work in the oil sector. And um, we were taken back to a, a room with blacked out windows mm. um, in the, the backside of the airport and um, just sort of left to sweat it out for a little while and and then we we'd fortunately grabbed our bags before that and Mm -hmm. so by the time we we were successfully um i guess we we sort of made it through the interrogation process um by by telling the truth without the camera you know which was Mm -hmm. so so absurd it, it had to be true you know we were looking for this Ghanaian poet who'd been tortured in the 70s under Obiang's uncle's regime right. and and had sort of fallen off the face of the planet since then and you know that's that's a pretty wild wild story um, and it was true um, so so we talked our way out of out of that interrogation and never had to go through customs um, where they thoroughly examine every 
every single bag. Um, so that's how we got our equipment in. And and in the country itself, we had to be very discreet. Most of our filming happened in in private locations. Um, you know, we we were able to do very little in public, and most of what we did film in public was on on smaller cameras, on GoPros, oh, and, and things like that. In the 70s, this would not have been quite as easy to do technologically. You, you'd have been carrying a giant tape recorder on your back, and you'd have the lenses, and it's just not possible, right? It Plus, it sounds like the other guy, the guy was worse in the 70s, right? Um, I don't know if he, he was worse in the 70s. I mean, he's famously dramatic i guess he had a flair for the dramatic on christmas day in 1975 he killed 150 political rivals in the national football stadium by firing squad while a live band played mary hopkins those were the days you know the first single that paul mccartney produced for apple records but but you know who was the director of his prison black beach prison which is still one of the most notorious in west africa for torture was his nephew obiang who's today president Hmm. Right. There's, there's, there's never, no one ever has a, no dictator has a record that encourages you in Africa. I mean, it's the past is even worse than the present if you dig, if you dig deep, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's what's, what's more sinister to me about Obiang than Macias is, is not his sort of cruel acts. But but rather his his manipulation of the West basically politically and and he's only managed to do it because of his his vast oil reserves. Um, his son actually, you know, L.A. Review of Books related L.A. tidbit. His his son Teodorin, who's widely expected to become the next president of Equatorial Guinea owns the most valuable property in Malibu. Really? Yep. He's got a three-hole golf course up there, lives right next to, um, I think he lives right next to Mel Gibson. Hmm. Um, ran a little um, rap label for a little while here in L.A. Um, as Minister of Mines and Forestry. Um, has a collection of, of supercars worth um, a couple hundred million dollars. He's probably not the only African dictator associated fellow with uh, with some property here in Los Angeles or in the greater Los Angeles area, is he? I mean, I can I can imagine there's more. Oh yeah, I think we could have a pretty good party if we got them all together. <laughs> I don't, would they get along? Uh, if if the drinks were flowing. Sure. Now we talked a little bit before recording about your imminent next trip to Africa. What what began your relationship with that continent? <laughs> Um, I mean, basically, in I think my relationship with Africa came about because of my my day job. You know, despite my incredibly lucrative career as a poet, sure. I I've pursued other other work during the day as a, a community based development consultant and sort of cross cultural negotiator and. And began working professionally in Africa in 2008, um, working with with the indigenous peoples of Burundi, the Batwa, were formerly called pygmies, a, a term they now reject as derogatory. Mm-hmm. 
And that sort of began my relationship. And actually, my relationship with Equatorial Guinea began, you know, I'd, I'd be in, in Burundi for a couple months each summer. And I was, I was working on translation projects, actually translating Mexican poets. And, you know, I, I just felt like I wanted to translate something, although very culturally different from, from Burundi, something at least a little bit closer. And I began reading this anthology from the 70s of Ghanaian literature. And that's where I discovered and began translating the work of Marcelo and Sema and Song, the poet that I eventually made this documentary about. What, what has engagement with African literature taught you about Africa that we don't get when we just read the news about the region? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it gives a much, a much broader perspective of what's happening in Africa. And I think that's, that's the thing that, that's so, to me, Africa is an incredibly exciting place. I think there, there's so much opportunity and so much, possibility for for all sorts of things i mean i i have close these young sort of horatio alger type african businessman friends who who inspire me to no end you know like when i launched my book in london in april a friend flew up from nairobi wow not not a cheap flight by the way no not at all you know and and he he knows nothing about poetry you know (laughs) like he's he's a a distributor for tusker the um the kenyan beer Mm. in nairobi um you know like probably never read a poem in his life outside (laughs) of elementary school or something you know yet and yet he's he's coming to my my book launch in london i think they're the literature literature today in Africa varies a lot depending on on the country. You see some really exciting stuff in Burundi, for example. There's there's a incredible workshop that's been going on about three years now. It's a collaboration between um, a young novelist named um, Roland Ruhero who writes in French. Incredible. And, and a poet, um, Keti Nivia Bandi. And they're basically inspiring a new, a new generation, sort of the per, the first post-Civil War generation of, of Burundian writers. And, and they're exploring totally new, new territory. I think they're like Roland's most recent book, which is called Baho, is the story of a mute, Tutsi boy who um, who gets lost in the forest and comes upon a Hutu village and um, needs to use the bathroom and since he's mute he's he's signaling to this young girl on the the river shore you know asking her where a bathroom is but it's interpreted that he's trying to rape her and because of the ethnic tensions he winds up getting chased through the forest by the men of this Hutu village um and it's 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 a power it's also a, a short book but it's just i think literature there still has such a a powerful role in in the discourse the sort of post civil war discourse of you know what's what's going to happen now who who are we as a a country and as a people and and what decisions are we going to make about our identity? 
We mentioned earlier Skylight Books, the well-known bookstore here in Los Angeles, Los Feliz, specifically where you did your reading of Shiki Nagaoka with Mario here. And there I always head straight to the world literature section, you know, whether it is a book from Africa or Mexico or wherever, or Japan, Korea. Uh, I go there to look for just the, whatever overlapping of cultures, whatever intersection of cultures seems most interesting. And I mean, automatically being translated into English, as you well know, you have cultures mixing right then and there because it's translated. But we, we've been talking about this book about a Japanese writer by a, by a Mexican author. And last time, two times ago, I was in Mexico City. I hung out with only Japanese people in order to get more of a at least two or three cultures going at once. Are is that sort of intersection something you look for in work and in life? Getting either the maximum number of cultures intersecting or two that you don't see often intersecting, whether it's literature or, or whatever. Is that something, is that a way you frame anything? Specifically, like, what's intersecting here? And is that, is that unusual? Is that an interesting pairing? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I do. I think I, you know, I'm, I'm very much like you, you know. I, I'm always... You'll find me in the world world literature section of the bookstore if it's a, a quality enough bookstore to have one, yes. uh, which is too seldom the case and, and speaks very highly of Skylight, in my opinion. But, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, of other examples of this in in the things I've I've recently been been reading it does it does occur i think there's you know there's a a great mexican poet that lives here in la from um, chihuahua who named gaspar orozco who translates from the chinese and, and who's also written quite a bit about about china and about chinese poetics and and i think his work is incredible i mean i guess what i'd say is i think those sorts of of crossovers and interactions often lead to very interesting and worthwhile literature but i'm not entirely sure that it's it's something i intentionally seek out or that i would even know how to <laughs> intentionally right. seek out you have to stumble upon it but i mean we we briefly met up at the latin american book fair downtown a few weeks ago and the one book i bought was from, there was from the unam uh, stand they had just because it was a book about korea written in spanish uh, you know, Korea. I may live there myself in a couple of years, and I study that language, and I'm trying to get better at reading Spanish. So it's there's there's sort of a weird a weird sense in which there's always an opportunity for self betterment when you're exposing yourself to as many cultures at uh, as, at at once as possible. Would you agree with that? Yeah, certainly. And I, I think there are some really fun examples. You know, I I was recently in in Huchitan in southern Oaxaca. And I was with my friend Victor Tehran, who has this new book, hasn't come out yet. It's his translations of 40 world poets into Isma Zapotec. Mm. So he was reading me Shakespeare and Wordsworth translated into Zapotec, mm. which is, you know, pretty... How often do you get the experience? Yeah, that's pretty wild. And that's a huge, that's a huge, you know distance not just not just linguistically but also physically and i i remember when when victor and i did a tour of the uk in 2010 with the poetry translation center the first night he arrived you know i asked him if he if he was tired or if he wanted me to take him to dinner and the one thing he wanted to do was was to go look at the thames 
because he'd read about it. Yes, indeed. You know, it, it got to put an image to the to the word at a certain oh, point. Exactly, and and that's that's one of my my fondest memories of that tour was the very first night he was there, standing on the Millennium Bridge, just looking down at the the impossibly dark water, and right. you know him just on the verge of tears, just finally seeing this this river that he he'd read so much about. We've mentioned the. I don't want to say multiculturalism, but multiculturality of Mexico City and of Los Angeles. London has its own brand, though, doesn't it? Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, it's... I, I don't want to say fallout, I, but I, it's its the result of, of empire and the, the boundaries of, of their empire versus ours, I suppose. And you have to make a very particular case to call... When you say the American Empire, it's got to be well. I mean this and that and the other thing. It's there's there's two very different kinds of empire there. Yeah, yeah. I guess I I'm thinking of basically uh, of structures of of political and economic domination. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. It's you know we we don't have the sort of copyrighted American empire like the the British did for so long. And they, were, they were proud of theirs. They were, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think we are proud of ours, too, if we don't call it, call it by that name. Oh, you know? I see. With all the linguistic experience you've had, whether learning, translating, writing, speaking, reading, what, what has that taught you about the, the strengths or weaknesses of the English language? I, I'm a big fan of the English language. You know, I mean, there's a reason I, I write in it. <laughs> I I don't know, you know, I'm I'm very hesitant to to indulge in this sort of linguistic anthropology, you know, a thousand words for snow type uh, <laughs> debates or sure. claims. I I think English to me is just a sonically rich language. It, it sounds great. I think our syllable timing is I'm trying to think of what I want to say about English's strengths. I guess, I guess for me, English's strength is that I I know it better than I know any other language. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I also think its its major strength right now is that it's a a world language. You know mm-hmm. that it's it's a bridge to and from so many other languages. Right. And countries have their own version of it in many ways. Oh yeah, I've. You know, when I was studying linguistics, I wrote a lot about Singlish from Singapore. Singlish. And, what's what's yeah. an example of a Singlish expression? Um, you know, Singlish incorporates a lot of Chinese um, particles. Mm, I see. So you know, la. They'd always say like, my one Singaporean friend of mine would always be like, "You want to go to the movies, la?" Like ah, just tack it on to stuff. <laughs> um, God only knows why. You know, I'd always be like, why are you attacking that particle on there? It doesn't even make sense. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't know. I don't know why. It's for the hell of it. it we just do. <laughs> um, but yeah, Singlish, you know, just exhibits a lot of influence from Chinese and Malay. Mm-hmm. And finally, you've mentioned doing some film type work about Shiki with Mario and, and some of, we talked about some of the readings you've done, the promotion of the book. How do you, how do you, sell a book like Shikinagoka, A Nose for Fiction, in, in America? That's a great question. I don't know. That's, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. Right. I think that's... What, what have you learned from the experience so far? 
Um, well, I mean, Mario's a very, a very charismatic and likable figure, one, which, um, which definitely helps, um, in, in person. I think our use of film is, is about more than just selling books. It's, it's kind of like Mario's use of photography is, you know, in his words, it, it tells, it's a parallel narrative. It, it doesn't, they don't describe the text exactly, and the text doesn't describe them. They're, neither one is propped up on the other. Right, you wouldn't want them to be. Yeah, and, and I think our films are, are the same way. Like I said earlier, the films we've made about Shiki sort of extend his narrative. You know, they there's a lot of information in the films that you won't find in the book. You should check them out. They're on... On our website, phonymedia.org, you can you can watch both the extended, sort of ten-minute version of our film and a couple shorter trailers for the book. I think film is, I don't know, for me, film I think is very much a, it's the literature of our times, I guess, and and I don't think we should, I don't know, I don't see us writers, you know, us poets and novelists com- competing with it I, I don't know I don't I don't feel threatened by it if anything I think it can enhance what we're doing if we if we take hold of it you know and and go for it <laughs> having read Shiki Nagaoka what should an English reader satisfied with that experience watch for next from the world of Mario Bertin I think Jacob the Mutant is going to be great it's a um, it's a wonderful text in terms of more immediate things the buenos aires review is going to be publishing an ebook um dossier of about about 2000 words from my my translation of mario's as yet unwritten novella writing lessons for the blind and deaf along with a a correspondence um probably sometime in july so that's on the horizon. Be very satisfying to <laughs> readers of Shiki. No doubt. I've been sitting here outside LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, with David Shook, filmmaker, poet, translator, specifically translator of Shiki Nagaoka, A Nose for Fiction by Mario Bertin, and author of the new collection, Arab City and Tongues Poetry Collection. David, thanks so much. Thank you, Colin. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.